Cus was very close, you know, very, very close with them. But Bryn, what stopped me in my tracks while researching this, what trainer, what coach jumps into bed with the athlete? That was one of the things that just makes you question what was really going on. week's episode of Tourist Information. I hope you all are safe and well. This week's episode has Dr. Scott Weiss, a biographer of Customato, Confusing the Enemy is what it's called. Very interesting book, lightly fictionalized biography. Customato, most famous as Mike Tyson's first trainer, died in 1985, just before Tyson won the World Heavyweight Championship as the youngest man ever to do it. And Tyson, in a lot of ways, was Customato's revenge on the world because what he saw in this 12-year-old kid the first time he watched him spar, he said at the time, this is the next heavyweight champion of the world and the youngest one. And he'd been out of boxing for a long time, living up in the Catskills. Cus is one of the most complex, enigmatic, brilliant, strange characters that boxing has ever produced. And Weiss assembled probably the largest repository of facts and interviews ever done to get at who he was. And there's still an elusive figure there. And in many ways, why I wanted to talk to Weiss so much is when I've investigated this story a little bit with interviews around boxing, this is very much a story that doesn't want to be told. And sometimes those are the ones that are quite important to probe a little bit, even though it is uncomfortable. So I hope you enjoy this one. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, review. We appreciate it. It helps other people find it. And uh, stay safe, everybody. The most obvious place to start, I think, is why did you choose to do a lightly fictionalized biography as opposed to just a conventional biography? That's a good question, Bryn. As I was researching, you know, Cuss and everything around him regarding his personal life with boxing, I realized that, you know, when writing a biography, you need to kind of have three to four references. And I kept on coming into roadblocks with information specifically regarding Cuss. So with having bits and pieces of it missing or people not really corroborating the same information, I decided to, with the spaces, kind of add some of my own input um, that I've seen along the way. And that's kind of why I decided to write more of a, so to say, fictionalized biography versus a straight biographer or a biographical novel. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, the first book I ever read was a Mike Tyson biography. So Cus, I found Cuss at about 14 years old. And um, trying to learn more about him, you really had to go at him kind of obliquely through Floyd Patterson, through Jose Torres, um, through subsequent Mike Tyson biographies. And even those Tyson biographies have been interesting as the writers try to assemble various accounts and there's piles of insights, but there's also piles of contradictions 
that seemed to keep coming up again and again. And I wonder, was it even more so with Custom Auto for you? Absolutely. And that really is, you know, a, so to say, a more succinct way of stating what the problem was or what I kept on running into. All these, you know, issues that seem to have gone back and forth without really one solid piece of information. So, yes, to find out the character and everything about Cuss, it was never written anywhere. It wasn't written, um, you know, even in small stories somewhere. I really struggled on finding a lot out about Cuss. So I had to really dive deep into over 70-something interviews, some people that were his cousins, some close family members, some old friends, um, so I really needed to put that together, but I definitely came across uh, a lot of contradictions, like you said, and that's really one of the main reasons why I ended up kind of writing the biographical novel of Cuss, period. And I mean, you know, I was just in researching before, before we chatted, I was looking at a book that seemed to touch on some stuff that your book certainly touches on as well, which is Jonathan Rendell's first he wrote, about Mike Tyson and did an oral history there in 2008 for Playboy. Uh, he was commissioned then to write a book called Scream, which he did finish in his lifetime, but did expand the oral history, which was published, I think, a couple of years ago. Um, but a lot of these characters now, Custom Auto died in November of 1985. These people are dying off who knew him, I mean, even though Camille Ewald lived a long time, how difficult was it for you to track down people that actually knew Cuss? At time when I was doing the research, it took me about 10 years. So there was a lot of people around. I had a lot of good references and solid references from those interviews. But of course, um, people that I would have loved to have interviewed personally would have been Cuss, would have been Floyd, Jose, and I didn't get the opportunity to really speak one-on-one -on -one with them. Um, but through my research, there were other footprints around me, and I was able to kind of feed off of some of those other footprints and get some information and insight into, um, you know, Cuss specifically. So I was able to use some of the stuff around me to kind of put this all together. What, what drew you to Customato as a character for, a, you know, an expansive, detailed biography like this? Well, you know, I always was fascinated with the martial arts and boxing. I was a martial artist, you know, in my early teenage years. I studied two different styles, also boxed as an amateur at local PALs and, and some of the uh, leagues around here. But I started getting interested through Cuss when I heard of Mike. And I would say, you know, while Mike was training, thinking he was going towards the 84 Olympics, that's when I kind of heard of the buzz. And I heard of the name Cuss, Cuss, and I didn't know what that meant. Um, I heard my father even mention the name, but I didn't understand what Cuss meant. I didn't even know it was a name for Constantine. And then after I kind of saw Mike for the very first time and his ferociousness in fighting and how his fighting style was kind of better for a smaller or shorter fighter, I was able to relate to that. You know, being only 5'6", most of the people I encountered were pretty much almost always taller than me. And I really started to understand some of his movements that related to my martial arts movements. And it made me say to myself, wow, look at this young guy, Mike Tyson. Who's his master? I want to learn more about him and what is this cuss. And as we said earlier, I could not find anything in one place written about him. There were just clippings and magazine articles and things spread out everywhere. And that's really when I decided to say, you know what, there needs to be 
one place where a lot of this information resides. And I just started my own research, um, interviews, uh, you know, one-on-one personal interviews, and I just, you know, after 10 years, put together probably more information than anybody else in the world regarding cuss. And it's such an interesting subject because, I mean, I remember as I was delving into those biographies on Tyson and you're learning about this incredible origin story for Tyson, at least as, as a boxer, with the 17-bedroom Victorian house presided over by somebody yes. who's frequently referred to as a mad genius who's living with a companion there who becomes the surrogate mother to dozens, is that fair, of yes. at-risk? juvenile delinquents who are siphoned into this house and warehoused, um, not many of them going anywhere with boxing. Some do. I mean, Teddy Atlas uh, was somebody who Customato actually gave testimony at a trial to keep him out of Rikers for armed robbery. That's and, true, yep. And brings him in as a trainer. Uh, Kevin Rooney takes over for Teddy Atlas after they have their incident. We can get into that where... Rooney becomes one of the hottest trainers in all of boxing with Tyson as a professional. Beyond that and Tyson, not many of those juvenile delinquents who were growing up alongside Tyson really went anywhere in the sport. I mean, is that fair to say? Yeah, it is fair to say. Um, you know, obviously, you know, with Cuss, his prize positions were, you know, Floyd, I would say, Jose, he did have Buster Mathis for a little while, and of course one he found Iron Mike. I would say those are really, you know, the four people, but so many other people came through, um, so to say, Customato's wings, and some of them, you know, really did well in life. And, you know, of course, just like anything, you know, some of them did not. But there are a lot of people out there that are very successful that are not boxing that thank Cuss for instilling a lot of the character of how to be a man into them. Um, so that was interesting to come across, too. A lot of people that didn't succeed in boxing but really succeeded in life really dedicated it to Cuss. I found that pretty solid. That's a great point. And, I, I mean, I wasn't speaking in any way to undermine Cuss's legacy as a trainer. I just meant at that latter stage in his life when he got Tyson, um, it's a pretty unusual setup. I haven't heard of a lot of older men warehousing juvenile delinquents with a loose tie-in to uh, a kind of community boxing gym on, in, I think it was in Main Street in, in Catskill, um, you know, and helping these kids, rehabilitating them, um, giving them chores in the house, like really caring for, for these people. And you've interviewed m- many of them, I, I take it, right? And I've seen many of them interviewed in uh, Barbara Koppel's documentary, Fallen Champ. Correct. Um, catches up with a lot of these people many years after Tyson first arrived there, I guess in 82? Is that right? Or, or maybe earlier? Yeah, I think it might have been a little bit earlier, yeah. But around that time when he was about 12, you know, so. Yeah, so, yeah, so, wow, 78, 79. Almost and, 80, yeah. Yeah, almost 80. So, I guess what I want to do with you is, you know, at, when this book came out, you and I met a few times. We talked about this. Uh, we're both very obsessive about Customato and Tyson and um, this kind of nexus of characters that emerged from it. It's always been a major source of fascination for me also. Um, but what I wanted to do in talking to you was, to look at the legacy of Tyson from the perspective of you trying to deconstruct it with as much evidence as possible that you gathered with this biography. And because Cuss 
there's this huge push to turn Cuss into such a feel-good, positive story of this this trainer who didn't take any money from Floyd Patterson or Jose Torres. Um, had he been there with Mike Tyson, everything would have been fine because Cuss was pure and perfect. And there's many people who offer the, who join the choir of what a what a tremendously positive, almost saintly figure that that Cuss was. And then there's another chorus of people who are quite destructive in, in their views, or not destructive, but uh, want to really push back on that. And it seems like a lot of this is litigated in chat rooms and with rumors. And one of the things that, that struck me about this book in terms of it being a biography is you detail an inventory, many aspects of his story that don't want to be told. It is very much one, one strong narrative vein of the story is a story that does not want to be told. So I, why don't we start off with, you know, who this guy was from a historical perspective, what he meant to boxing, what his legacy is there, um, the impact he had, and then we can kind of put on the table what you discovered in probably collecting the largest repository that there's ever been of interviews and evidence and information that you gathered. And, you know, I think it would be useful for listeners to, to have you as a resource to clarify what is known, what's not known, what is innuendo, um, and we just go through it that way. That sounds, That'd be great. Okay. Okay. That'd be great, Brent. I think it's, uh, you know, it's really ideal to start talking about um, everything related to cuss. So, um, yeah, anywhere you want to start would be fine with me. So how does this guy, where does he come from, and walk me through his path to get into boxing? Sure. So... Cuss, you know, grew up in the Bronx at a, in a place called Classen Point, you know, um, kind of, you know, of 125th Street. So if you know New York, uh, people know of Classen Point. Right now, pretty tough neighborhood. And back then, it was pretty tough as well. But Cuss had, a, an, you know, a bunch of brothers. And throughout his life, one of his brothers, Jerry, was um, a boxer. And he got introduced to boxing through one of Cuss's uncles. And Cuss really just... You know, loved kind of um, being by Jerry's side. So Cuss, I think the first time he's ever seen boxing was through his uncle Willie, who did some wrestling and boxing. But he really started to get close to the ring with his brother Jerry. That was Cuss's first um, kind of lick of the ice cream cone, so to say. And of course, as any young kid, you know, seeing his older brother, he wanted to get in there too. And Cuss did have one fight, which was with a guy named Baby Arizmendi, actually a professional fighter. He wasn't, uh, I think he wasn't pro at the time. But, um, so Cus did have one fight, but that was his real entrance into boxing through his family. And like I mentioned, getting close to the ring really through his brother, Jerry. And what, what is he like at this time? I mean, you cover the fact that he gets involved in the military. I mean, that's one of the things that is he's so frequently mentioned in the annals of boxing, and yet it's so murky and muddy to get at who this guy was. He's a very enigmatic figure, and yet a tremendously visible figure. There's fight footage of him dancing around with Muhammad Ali, uh, Muhammad Ali calling him um, after losing a fight, and Mike Tyson picking up the phone or overhearing the conversation. It's like he's so present in boxing, and it's like he didn't make a pile of money off it. I mean, he didn't, sounds like he didn't make almost any money off it. Who was he 
outside of boxing. I mean, there's the military. You mentioned in your book that he almost got into the priesthood as a career path. Um, walk me through, like, the psychology of Cuss and, and how it was evolving meeting the world. I mean, sure. how's he making a living? How's he navigating his life? Yeah, through the world in the you know early 1900s, basically. Yeah. Um, you know, because he was born in 1908, and you know he was basically doing odd jobs early. So he had a stint with I think a Fiorello LaGuardia. He wanted to get into politics at one time. He wanted to maybe even get into the church. He wanted to be a priest. He used to follow the church. And you know everything to a T. He just seemed to be at that age, just like any other young kid, really searching for something. He grew up with a father and no mother, so he, you know I think that that was a piece to his psychological profile. You know, uh, his mother died really young, so you know I think that had an influence. He was very fascinated in in guns and inventions at that time. Um, he was always doing odd jobs and favors for people. So, you know, people always said, how did Cuss get away with not taking money from, you know, people? And really, he was, well, back in the day, it was a lot about, hey, you do this for me now, I'll do this for you then. And there was no real exchange of money. It was more like the barter system. So he was kind of managing life through, you know, that lens, so to say. But to boxing, you know, you mentioned that. To boxing, you know, Cuss is like the Vince Lombardi of boxing. Um, there are so many, you know, trainers out there and managers out there, but I don't think any of them, to be honest with you, really took a kid from a really young age and really raised them to, through adulthood and really trained them to be a champion. I know a lot of people out there that have gotten fighters over time and have switched fighters, but I do think that that makes Cuss somewhat special to be able to, you know, really take a youth and raise them in multiple ways. So to boxing, I think he was really important. But he's not the knight in shining armor, Bryn, that everybody talks about. And that is one thing that I tried to bring out very clearly is that you have to pay to play. Cuss made many deals under the table. He was an angry old man pushing people aside and probably was one of the most shrewdest businessmen that I ever saw. So from, from that angle, no doubt about it, Cuss knew how to sidestep every landmine that was out there, and he wheeled and dealed just like the best of them. So it's not like Cuss was just this knight in shining armor fighting Jim Norris, the whole IBC, and he you know, dissolved the whole mafia's connection to boxing. There was a lot more that went into that, but Cuss was really kind of, so to say, the bow tie on everything that happened. So he was really influential in boxing. He was still that youth, that kid growing up trying to figure out, you know, who he was, and then slowly decided over time that boxing was what he wanted to do. And that's really where most of us know the story where he started the Gramercy Gym, and then from there um, developed some of the fighters. And that's, I think, the story that most people have told from that point on. What do you make of the fact that he's often held up to be somebody who is vigilantly, vociferously anti-mafias involved in boxing, and yet you detail, and you're saying now, he quite regularly was involved in dealings with the mob, but yet was able to preserve the image of this integrity. Um, it, you know, one of the things that I, I find so interesting about him, especially what he kind of inculcated in Tyson, is... Tyson's brilliant ability to market himself, to intimidate opponents, like the psychology of Tyson, of navigating his business interests as well as you know, just the task at hand of intimidating fighters out of their wits. I mean, 
That's a combination of people, Bryn. What you're talking about really is a combination. So part of that is cusp. The other part of the marketing is Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Mm. Caton. I mean, I I cannot tell you that if it wasn't for those two gentlemen and their input in the boxing world, their knowledge, all their videos and tapes that they had, how to get things out there, how to put a video cassette together of all these fights that you, that nobody would have ever seen and really make sure they're on the desk of the people it needed to. So you're really talking about, uh, you know, something that's twofold. The psyche of a warrior came from Cuss, period. But again, the marketing came from Jimmy and, uh, and Bill Caton. And I, I always was more fascinated with the cuss warrior part. Um, and, you know, I always would love to, you know, dive into that end of it because cuss was so well read. And whatever he learned, whatever his knowledge was, he had such a beautiful way of getting to the common denominator and then instilling that or distilling it down so perfectly and then instilling it in his, um, you know, his fighters. Yeah. And, no, and you're quite right. I mean, Jim Jacobs and Bill Caton, the marketing of Tyson is brilliant. I was just speaking to, let's say, after they're gone, after they're removed from the equation, I just meant that Tyson coming out of prison on a, on a race conviction, you don't expect that to be a very marketable position to be in. And I, don't, I can't think of many people who could make $20 million to fight Peter McNeely or $25 million. Um, he was bigger than ever and still managed to remain really re- relevant and one of the highest paid athletes in the world for another... 15 years. Mike was moving in jail. He was making calls to his dealers of, you know, for cars, and he was making sure that houses were taken care of, and people were kind of, you know, juggling everything for him. So it's not like things totally went to a standstill with his life. Obviously, sure. we know what happened with boxing, but he was moving. So as soon as he came out, I mean, you know, Don King picked him up, you know, right away. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, fair. But, I, yeah, I don't want to jump too far ahead to where Tyson enters his story, but the Gramercy gym, Cuss is there. Take me from there to him getting the youngest heavyweight champion in the world with Floyd Patterson. Sure. So basically what Cuss did is he, he wanted to, you know, really have his own stable of fighters. That was one of the goals that he decided at a young age. And be that as it may, he needed to find a gym, he needed to find a ring, he needed to kind of put that together. And really that was the time where he started calling all his old friends to put things together and help him out. Help, help me find space. Help me find a ring. Where can I get a ring from? So he had somebody that he helped build gas stations. Uh, and again, one thing after another, all the favors that Cuss had done for other people in the past seemed to have surfaced. So he ended up getting the Gramercy Gym, but also got involved with the Empire Sporting Club. That was a guy named Jack Barrow. So to actually enter tournaments, um, you needed to not only have a gym, but you had to have a boxing club. So Cuss and Jack put together um, part of the gym and the Empire State Boxing Club. As that started to unfold and as the gym started to become a little bit more popular, which was on 14th Street in Irving Place, um, over time, fighters started to wander in there. Um, Rocky Graziano was somebody that people didn't even know was under Cuss's tutelage at, at, you know, at a very, very young age and at this early time through the Gramercy. But from there, Floyd's older brother came into the gym. 
And when Floyd Dole, the brother, brother, came into the gym, he started boxing with Cuss. And that immediately, like I mentioned earlier, everybody emulates, I should say most people want to emulate their older brother. And Floyd decided to kind of throw the gloves on. And one day, Cuss literally, while he was coming to the gym with his brother, threw gloves at him. And next thing you know, Floyd had gloves on, and it was love at first punch. How old was Floyd at that point? In the teenage years, Floyd was a, a young teenager. I, I, know, I don't know the specifics, but I think it was more like the 12, 13-year age because his brother was uh, about four or five years older at that time and was, and, and was entering tournaments. And, I mean, an interesting parallel there is the similarities that Floyd has with, with Tyson. Mike, yeah. Yeah, coming from the same neighborhood, uh, having huge problems, you know, a long rap sheet as a juvenile delinquent, troubled kid. And with this connection with Cuss, his life takes this incredible turn. Absolutely. And then similar happened to Jose. I mean, that, that's a funny story. Cuss tried to you know, farm out Jose. He started to send letters to Puerto Rico, to Ponce, if I'm not mistaken, to try to find Jose. And there was a funny story that Cuss sent the letter to Jose Torres, who actually was the wrong Jose Torres. It was Jose Torres, the baseball player. And he got so excited that he was coming to the United States to visit Customato. And then Cuss actually figured out that he sent the, the telegram to the wrong person, and it wasn't the boxer Jose Torres. And then, again, that was how Jose, at a very young age, you know, with his father, came from Puerto Rico to Cuss. But, yes, there was something very special about getting a kid at a very young age for Cuss. And from there, I mean, yeah, he's, he's, he, he's with the youngest heavyweight champion in the world with Patterson. He, he's right behind Jose Torres, becoming the light heavyweight champion of the world. Cuss is in a very powerful position, but he's also very much aware of the precariousness of Patterson's weaknesses or vulnerability as a, as a pretty small heavyweight champion. He's protecting him. Yeah. He's a real brilliant matchmaker in terms of creating a lot of soft fights for Patterson, but inevitably Sonny Liston is on his way to colliding with Patterson. And then it seems that Cuss, what happens to him at that point? Like how does he go from being the hottest trainer in the world when boxing is the biggest sport in the world to being really ostracized, really thrown out of the sport, and, and it takes a long time for him to come back in. Like, yeah, it was really this. It was the split with Floyd. You know, uh, you know, really, what happened, Bryn, was that everybody wanted a piece of the heavyweight, so he got you know, poked and prodded, and Floyd, this is, from so many different people, from so many walks of life. And, you know, when the birds are chirping in your ear so much, I think that, you know, somebody that might not be as educated and as strong-willed can kind of, you know, really succumb to this, so to say. And he really had so many other people telling him, like you just said, Cuss is not doing the right thing. Uh, we can get you more money. Meanwhile, Cuss has, you know, got him, I think, with the first million-dollar fight, if I'm not mistaken. So Cuss was able to, you know, do a lot, but I think the people around him, Floyd being, it just really got to him. And Floyd believed the, the birds chirping. And he even said later on, years later, the worst and the most sorry thing he ever did in his life was leave Cuss. 
So we know that Floyd was upset about that, and he knows that he shouldn't have listened to everybody. But, you know, everyone did, you know, get in his ear. They split. He never wanted him to fight Sonny. He wanted him to fight Sonny under his own um, terms. Sonny actually came to Cuss and threatened him one time and, you know, came to the Gramercy gym and said, Cuss, I'd give me a fight. And he, Cuss literally said, Sonny, clean up the people around you. You're not getting a fight. Um, and that was a true story. But that was really Cuss just saying, I don't want my boy to fight you at this point yet. Um, we want it to be on my terms. And that gets back to the psychology and the strategy of a fight. It's Cuss wanted to make sure it was him calling the shots. Cuss was very into controlling everything. I mean, talk about a control freak. Anyone will tell you that. He, if it wasn't in his control and every five finger was and his claws were in it, he's not going to get involved. So I think that's really kind of what happened with him and Floyd. They split, and, um, and, and really that was the beginning of the end for you know, Cuss, so to say, until Jose came around. And and after after Jose Torres, Cuss is not hands on in boxing in any meaningful way. He doesn't have no. another champion. In, well, I mean, he doesn't get another champion. Tyson was going to be his next champion and, and became that. Um, what is his life like when he's outside of boxing? How is he making a living? How is he surviving? Um, where is he without boxing at at that point? You know, to me, it was pretty sad, Bryn. You know, to me, it was like when I was researching this, it was like you take somebody who's really at the pinnacle of something. I mean, really, his his name was almost a household name at one time because boxing was such a, you know, huge sport. Um, and then for somebody to go, you know, for such a, from such a high point of having so many champions to really being up in the Catskills, Nobody calling him anymore, asking him, hey, what'd you think of the Ali fight? Um, you know, living in that, you know, that mansion, you know, with, you know, him, you know, basically a whole bunch of kids and not a wife. You know, that was another issue that I had that people, you know, always told me that Cus and Camille were married. They were not married. They were just companions, like you said. So I, I found it very lonely, bottom line. I think he was living a very lonesome life up in the Catskills when he wasn't around boxing. And... Of course, you know, his last, you know, light was really much, but it was kind of sad when I was kind of looking, his kind of dealings with, in Rhinebeck with Buster Mathis and kind of tinkering around with trying to get control of the fighters and people just had so much more strength and savviness at that time in Cuss's life. Buster Mathis got taken from him. He just didn't really have that many cards to play. He didn't have the power and the influence that he did and, 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 you know, Cuss kind of just slowly tiptoed his way out of the game uh, and went upstate. And he got upstate um, because a lot of his family moved up there in really the early 70s. A lot of his, a few of his brothers moved up there, um, their wives. And he always liked that area. That area was a very big and popular area, if you know also, Bryn. The Catskills, you had all those, you know, um, country clubs up there people were going to. It was a very vibrant area. So it was a, a, big, a big place that people kind of wanted to aspire to, or so to say, retire once they moved out of the city. And that's what he did. But ultimately, um, you know, not to echo what I said before, but it was kind of sad and it looked like it was a kind of a lonely time in Cuss's life post-boxing. So how does he get this famous 17-bedroom Victorian house with, you know, a large acreage uh, where he's living with this Camille Ewald? Like, how does that get set up? 
Yeah, that was always a kind of, you know, sketchy scene for me and how to figure that out. I was always curious to know, you know, if a guy that really claims to never had any money, how do you get this huge, you know, Victorian mansion? And then after digging deep into that, uh, I realized that that was part of Jimmy's help. Jimmy Jacobs always took care of Cuss. I think I mentioned earlier, um, Jimmy and Bill really did a lot of the marketing, you know, for Tyson and really kind of, you know, put him out there. They also, Jimmy lived with Cuss for 10 years earlier. So, you know, they, they kind of always had a really tight bond and Jimmy always looked out for Cuss. And at that time, they wanted you know, cuss to, you know, be out of the city and be in a safe place and, and be kind of upstate on his own. But, it, but by the same time, he wanted him to be around boxing. This is Jimmy wanted cuss to be around boxing and so did cuss. So, you know, one of cuss's brothers, sisters was a, a sister. Her sister was Camille. So I forget that was um, kind of like a sister-in-law, if I'm not mistaken. And they basically were just companions and really good friends. And, you know, Cuss didn't want to live alone. So they kind of became close in friendship. They lived together. And Jimmy always wanted Cuss to be around boxing, like I said. So they decided to start a gym up there and have underprivileged kids come through so Cuss can do the same thing that he's always done his whole life, take these young kids and kind of train them throughout their lives, not only to be a boxer, but to be a gentleman in life. So they kind of reiterated, so to say, what they did um, in the past upstate. That doesn't seem like a terribly easy thing to navigate, though. I mean, no. Cuss is, Cuss is not a, operating a group home. It's a, a, I, there's not some official capacity that it's doing. It just seems like Cuss's brilliance with networking and maybe Jim Jacobs' money and influence or whatever, because how does one go about becoming a warehouse for dozens and dozens and dozens of at-risk youths, just like Tyson eventually became with Bobby Stewart at Tryon recommending he move into this house? I'm just curious, like, how the system permit this kind that's of thing. That's a great question. And I hate to tell you, Bryn, that there really is no answer. Uh, he just did it. I think, you know, in today's day and age, you would have to have social workers present, drug counselors present, drug testing on a regular basis. So I don't know how he got away with that, to be honest with you. I do know that Jimmy had a lot of pull. You know, Jimmy knew a lot of people in a lot of hot places. Um, he was a wealthy man. You know, he was a great, great handball player, too. But again, I think that their their connection, Jimmy was able to kind of, you know, so to say, shelter Cuss, you know, from a lot of that and kind of support him in some of the endeavors. But so nobody, Jacob, there was no license to do it. There, right. You know, he just basically just said, hey, I just want to put this together, and here are some kids in the neighborhood, let's go. That's really what it came down to. So, like, let's get into Jimmy Jacobs for people who don't know. Jimmy Jacobs was referred to as the Babe Ruth of handball, yeah. multi-year world champion of handball, an obsessive comic book collector. Um, who, who is Jimmy Jacobs? Because he's so instrumental in the origin story of Tyson's boxing career, and we're seeing a bond that they had, which appeared to be second only to Tyson's relationship to Cuss in terms of intimacy and closeness and trust. And Tyson loses Cuss in 85 and Jimmy Jacobs in 1988, and that's where everything starts to go off the rails. Yeah. So who's, who's Jacobs in this equation in, in Cuss's life and, and Tyson's life? Well, in their lives, Jimmy was an amazing fight fan and had the 
the, the ability and the financial backing to really have the biggest collection of fights that ever existed. I mean, Jimmy really was able to research fights, get them sent from Europe back and forth, trade fights with people. And I think from Cus and Tyson's point of view, it was really Jimmy's love for the, you know, for the ring that really got them endeared all to each other. When Cus was a young man, and I think Jimmy was uh, young as well. I'm not, you know, I think Cus was a lot older then, but when Jimmy was young, they met at a fight film convention. That's where they kind of met, and they strum a conversation. Obviously, you know, Jimmy respecting who Cus was and what he's done in his lifetime, and then them coming together and meeting, and then starting to kind of share a lot of these old fight films with Cus, who was also a big fan. These guys would watch fight films all day and all night long together. They ended up being so close that they moved in together, and they lived together in an apartment in Manhattan, I think in the 50s, 56 or 57th Street, for about a decade. Uh, a one-bedroom apartment with one bed. So, you know, they were tight, obviously, and they were definitely filming uh, watching all these films together. So from that point of view, yes, they, they loved Jimmy's you know, fight knowledge and, more importantly, his fight collection. Right. Well, and, and maybe that's an opportunity to look at, you have this kind of Garden of Eden scenario that gets brought up all the time, where when Tyson talks about those early stages in Fallen Champ, this is well documented, where you see Tyson confessing to Teddy Atlas and, and other people um, that there was something really beautiful and pure in his life at the time that he was living with Cus and Camille and these other kids in, in that house and he's training you know a lot of people who were seeing him you know Norman Mailer is a friend other writers Thomas Hauser has told me about going up to visit around that time to see a very young Tyson um, anytime he seems to talk about cuss he breaks down crying it's like yeah. the most automatic way to get him to cry um, but as you're mentioning, like a lot of the rumors and innuendo behind that, that setup that Tyson had, um, maybe this is a point to look at it. I mean, as you say, and you mentioned in your book, that D'Amato was living for 10 years with Jim Jacobs. Um, Jacobs was married to L Lorraine Jacobs. Um, D'Amato has a companion that a number of the people who lived in that house, including Kevin Rooney, have said what was his was a companion, it was a sexual relationship, but there's a lot of innuendo out there that Jim Jacobs and Cuss had a sexual relationship while they lived together. Um, rumors that Cuss D'Amato, um, you know, like one point that in your book that you mentioned speaking to this is, is that D'Amato and Jacobs' medical records from the time of their death were sealed. There was a lot of secrecy. Teddy Atlas has said that with, with Jonathan Rendell in the yeah. Playboy interview in the, in the book that um, suggesting there was controversy with how they died. They may have died of AIDS. He implies that they had been lovers. Um, I have certainly heard rumors about that behind the scenes in boxing with some old timers talking about it. Um, how does this inform that era? Like, what does it mean that there's these rumors around that? Is that like, is is there some well, kind of, yeah. Yeah, I came across the same thing, Bryn. I mean, people are trying to cover something up. 
That was very frustrating for me. There were some people that were ready and willing to speak, and there was other people that didn't want anything to do with that conversation whatsoever. So that became something that I realized that people did not want to talk about. And that just got me, you know, more and more interested as a researcher to figure out, you know, what is going on. So I, I've read a lot of the stuff you've talked about. I've heard Teddy say this. Um, you know, I wish I can tell you straight out that I know for a fact um, that, you know, at least, you know, Cuss and Jimmy were lovers, but I don't know that for a fact. But I do know from firsthand interviews that, you know, Jimmy was gay, that, you know, that Jimmy and Lorraine had a very special relationship. And I spoke to Lorraine Jacobs uh, on many occasions, and she told me that specifically, that they had a special relationship. Again, I'm not somebody to really dive so deep and, and ask her these questions about her husband that passed, and at that time I didn't. But I know that, you know, just hearing that a special relationship, I heard another person mention about Jimmy that in his office there was a special room that was a sexual room so i came across these things no doubt about it could i get people to corroborate it all the time no can i hear it from one or two yes but this was something that i realized was was kind of being covered up in some way uh, people didn't want that to people didn't want other people to know that there might have been gay people around us I don't know why that was, you know, such an issue. There are gay fighters. Um, there are homosexuals in everything that we do, and that's so not an issue. But I do find that when I was coming across it, why would Jimmy's death, why would Jimmy's death records be sealed? Why would some of his cousin's military records be sealed? And who sealed it? Why, why was it sealed? So when I kept on running into that, I wasn't able to say specifically what is being covered up, but I know somebody was trying to cover something up and everybody was drinking out of the same Kool-Aid except for a few people. Um, somebody, uh, a guy named Tommy Gallagher, who was very big in the fuck game, told me when he was a very young kid not knowing where to go, he was thinking about going to Cusso's gym because Cuss had the heavyweight. He was thinking about going to Stoneman's. They said, stay away from the Gramercy gym. That's the candy store. So, you know, I kept on hearing these little innuendos like you've heard and read, and, and I wasn't able to really kind of close the case file on that whatsoever, but I know I wanted to start the dialogue, and I wanted other people to try to talk. Um, Teddy mentioned something. He didn't really want to dive into it. Uh, one of Cuss's close friends mentioned something. He didn't want to dive into it. So, yeah, that's what I came across. So all I was able to do as a researcher and a writer was write what I came across, and that's really what I did. And I tried to describe um, my visions throughout my experience in the book. Well, and it seems it seems like what's complicated about this and and tricky tricky to navigate, and, and I encountered this too in, in a much more limited way than you, just with an article as opposed to a book, is reading. W.K. Stratton's book about Floyd Patterson um, from 2012, Floyd Patterson, yep. The Fighting Life of Boxing's Invisible Champion, he has an account with Tomato, paranoid of the mob, or at least under the auspices of being paranoid of the mob, sharing a bed with Floyd Patterson, who's a teenaged Floyd Patterson, I believe. Yes. And, and as they're lying in bed, hiding from the mob, that's the rationale that Cuss has offered, um, a physical advance is made in the dead of the night by Cuss, according to Patterson. Correct. Uh, Patterson, Patterson was quoted in it. Footsie. Footsie. They were playing Cuss was playing footsie with him. And he interpreted it 
as a sexual advance. He was directly asked whether he felt it to be a sexual advance, and he said, yes, I did believe it. He didn't say it with any animus. He didn't say it wasn't to launch a lawsuit against him or anything. He just said, yeah, I think that's what it was. And Gay Talese at that time is also quoted in the book as, as believing that Cuss had a sexual attraction for Patterson. So I'm in no way trying to conflate pedophilia, potential pedophilia here with homosexuality to have nothing to do with one another. But the moment you introduce this situation and suggest a pattern of behavior, at least in the people that Cuss is surrounding himself with, with at-risk youth being warehoused without much scrutiny or like anybody kind of policing his dealings with them, it really does change the tenor of how we can look at what was happening in the Catskills, potentially. Now, I want to be really clear. There was absolutely no criminal complaint that I've ever found, aside from Tommy Gallagher saying outright that this, this kind of stuff was happening in the Catskills. I've not found anybody else to, to come out and say that. Um, I've not interviewed the sheriff in the Catskills to see, you know, what, what, were, what was the innuendo. But I think that this, for me, was where the tone shifted potentially with Cuss having a, a private life or being a closeted homosexual or having a relationship with Jimmy Jacobs where suddenly it looks very different because of what Floyd Patterson said and even a weirder quote um, from Patterson, I believe it was, I'm lucky that Cuss wasn't a woman because if he was, I would have I made him my wife. So now, I'm just letting you know, and I want people I might to... Have married this him. is a fact. This is not... This is what Floyd really said. That's... that's You know, this is not somebody, you know, rearranging what Floyd said, Brandon. No, these are, this is testimony. This is... Testimony. Yeah, I just want to make that... You're right. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm reading a direct quote here from, from Stratton's book, where he's quoted Patterson to say, Cuss, he's speaking of, he makes mistakes, but the more they try to turn me against him the more his quality comes out. Lucky he isn't a woman. I might have married him. Right, right. And, well, and, no doubt about it. Cuss was very close, you know, very, very close with them. But, Bryn, what stopped me in my tracks while researching this, what trainer, what coach jumps into bed with the athlete? Again, I've been to the Olympics three times. I've been around the best athletes in the world. I don't, and I've, I've slept in hotel rooms with many teams. Nobody does that. That's unacceptable. So it made me feel uncomfortable. You know, you're scared of the mob. You lock the door, I say to myself. You, you put the bed in front of the door. You know, you do different techniques in my mind, not jump into bed with the athlete. And again, that was one of the things that it just makes you question what was really going on. And of course, you know, I said the same thing. What? Why would somebody do that? And that stopped me dead in my tracks as well. Yeah, I mean that was that was the issue I had in kind of reporting on the story. Is I I was working off of a lot of Tyson's sexualized language with opponents, saying saying to Donovan Razor Ruddick, "I want to kiss those big lips of yours," or, and I'm quoting him, um, "I'll I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot," to a reporter who was saying that he should be put in a straitjacket, um, this rape language and homoerotic language, uh, Tyson 
regularly kissing his, kissing Jimmy Jacobs in the corner um, after fights. Nothing nothing wrong with that, but it's it's curious somebody who is projecting such vitriol in connection with homosexuality or rape and the comfort in a fairly homophobic sport of kissing a guy in his late 50s when you're 18. Um, the optics of it were just unusual. And as I say, finding coming across that in Stratton's book about Patterson and about Talese, who obviously has written these tremendous profiles on Patterson and knew Cuss very, very intimately. I, I don't mean intimately. I'm not, I mean, as a, as, as a reporter who spent a lot of time with him, um, when I called, called police to ask him about that account, because he's quoted in Stratton's book by saying that he had formed a strong impression mm-hmm. that there, there was sexual feelings that Cuss harbored for Patterson, he immediately... Uh, got very angry and very upset saying that I was trying to contextualize Cuss as a Jerry Sandusky. Right. And, and I, I was not. I just thought it, it was kind of incumbent upon me to follow up with something that at, le- at the very least suggested a flag to inquire from somebody who's directly quoted about the situation. And again, I couldn't understand his defensiveness I don't have a, a track record of tabloid stuff, you know, launching a whole thing about innuendo against anybody. Um, but I also think if you look in the UK, you have uh, Jimmy Savile, somebody yep. who is enormously charitable towards children, who almost immediately after his death, it's uncovered that he molested and raped hundreds of kids. Uh, the Leaving Neverland documentary with um, Michael Jackson where Michael Jackson for, for a long time was defending sleeping in the same beds with kids, saying that anybody who cast aspersions that there was anything wrong with that, that it was their own disgusting imagination and that he was completely innocent and acting in accordance with how Jesus Christ had told him we should all be with children and everything. So it's a, it's a, it's a strange line to walk um, navigating some of this stuff because when there isn't clear criminal complaints and all of that, that kind of documentation, you, it seems like you're a lurid asshole to probe a little bit in this. And if you don't do it, it seems like that neglect can also allow some of these things to go on. But it's there, Bryn. There's something there. And, you know, that's what I really wanted to bring to the surface is that, you know, all these statements that have been made um, from the early accounts from Floyd to the later accounts of, from Teddy Atlas, where are they coming from? This was my problem. Where, you know, I was always, you know, taught if it quacks like a duck, it looks like a duck, it smells like a duck, it's probably a duck. You know, and again, that's the last thing. You know, Cuss is my idol. He's my hero. I live so many things. I mean, so many parts of my day thinking about what he would do, um, what statements he would use, his strategy on something. So, you know, it really took me back, obviously, you know, hearing some of these things. But nobody really wanted to come forward and directly talk about, you know, 
the deeper side of it. When I talk to Teddy, I'm like, Teddy, where did you get all that stuff from? Oh, I don't want to talk about it. Why don't you want to talk about it? Because um, it would take too long. Well, okay, I got time. You know, People just did not want to get into it, and that was something for a researcher that became frustrating. And, all, and as I said earlier, all I had to do is document these roadblocks that I came across, um, these squits that people wanted to hide, these documents that were sealed. So, you know, you make your own decision. Here are the facts. You know, I'm a scientist. This is what we have. I'm laying it on the table. Um, but again, as you said, there's no outright criminal complaint, you know, anywhere. But uh, these are innuendos. And there, are, there probably is some sort of reality to some of the facts. Well, and, and I mean, you document... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, the medical records are sealed after his death and Jimmy Jacobs' death. Any criminal record that he may have had, I mean, Cuss, according to Tyson, and again, I, I want to reiterate, Tyson in his own book, first meeting Cuss, his first assumption was that thinking that this guy had homoerotic feelings for him. Yeah. He puts it in his own book. I know, but Mike also felt that, you know, like Mike always says that, you know, being from, you know, Brooklyn, anybody looks at him or wants to do anything for you, he thinks, you know, you just want to screw him in the ass, you know. So I think that Mike has that kind of um, kind of mentality from where he comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, I'm just, I'm just saying that like, it's not, I, I think that it's, it's not us bringing this to the story. The story, I mean, and again, like I, I didn't come to cuss thinking, I just, there's something fishy here. I believe it. It was just how many contradictions there were. And then, I mean, having the medical records sealed, the criminal records, I mean, if this was an active homosexual at that time in New York, I mean, it was a mortal risk for him to be outed, for him to, you know, lose his job, lose his job, you know, his own, his safety. Um, This was a very dangerous time to be gay, even in a closeted sense. And his army records are also sealed. His FBI records are sealed. Cuss was very left-leaning. I think Tyson told me he was basically a communist ideologically. Um, So one does wonder if these things, if you're, you're coming up in your research that they're all sealed, what is there? Like what needs to be sealed? And and why is it sealed? Correct. And that was just, a constant issue that, you know, I came across only on that realm is that, you know, in that realm, something was definitely, you know, being covered up, you know, period. And I was never able to uncover what has been, you know, covered up. But, you know, when you hear some of these statements around, it just kind of drags you to a a conclusion. Um, But, of course, you know, like we said earlier, there is no um, statement by anybody on record saying, you know, stating that it is true whatsoever. Well, and so as we look at Cuss getting getting Tyson at that time, and everything changes for him. He has an even you know, he has the best champion that he's ever worked with. He immediately recognizes it. It takes him seems like less than a couple of rounds of sparring for him to say, "I'm I'm watching." the next youngest heavyweight champion ever. But he said that to a lot of people. You know, people, oh, interesting. Interesting. I don't think everybody realizes that Cus said that a lot. That was him instilling confidence in you. He would have said uh, that to almost any kid, you know, but of course, you know, Mike takes it as, how did he know? Why yeah. me? 
you know, and I understand that. And Mike still struggles. You know, he told me, I'm still struggling with why me? He'll tear, he teared up at dinner one time just saying, why me? How did he know? How did he pick me? How did he know I was going to be? You know what I mean? And that's the funny part is Cus said that to many people. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's odd because the behavior, and I, I know in Tyson's memoir, and, and he's told me this in interviews, is Tyson, Tyson was somebody who grew up um, with a very pronounced list, a very high-pitched voice, totally incapable of standing up for himself in very dangerous circumstances when his mom moved him into the Brownsville section of, of Brooklyn. Um, the only sort of animate object he connect to were pigeons, and even there, it, one of their heads gets twisted off. Yeah. Um, it's as though when we look at Cuss with how invested he was in psychology with grooming fighters of any stripe, but also grooming people that I think like that's where it seems the connection that Tyson had with Cuss, where it's, I think it's fair to say the most profound connection he ever had, ever has had in his life, seemingly by his emotional response. But it's, it does seem a little dangerous that there's something it's, yeah it's the ultimate master student and that there's a piece yeah. of it that truly truly is there truly truly is and you know I, and I've spoken to Mike about that you know it, just listening and having the singular focus with Cuss was you know endeared Mike to Cuss just knowing that they were going to wake up and talk fight all day long Mike loved it that's it. That's all he wanted to do. You know, and I can relate to that. I remember being a young kid. I did not want to consume anything but martial arts and boxing material, period. Yeah. I really, at one point in my life, didn't even care. I didn't even know what was going on in the world. But I knew everything about my fighters that I was studying, and I could probably mimic and demonstrate their exact great techniques. So I kind of relate to how Mike, you know, did that, you know, no doubt about it. Yeah, I just, I just, there's just this sense of all the positive things that D'Amato was able to arm Tyson with to make this tremendous ascent in the sport. I mean, this mesmerizing comet in not just boxing, but sports or even American culture. But also you had somebody where I, when I, you know, read the accounts and scream and, and I, I badly wish uh, the last book that Mark Cram Sr. was, I think he was contracted to write it, but he'd interviewed Tyson, I think, for Esquire and had been commissioned to do a book on Tyson where I would have loved to have had his insights and his interviews also (laughs) interviewing this cast of characters. But Teddy Atlas makes the point, several people around Tyson, that Tyson was struggling, and he did struggle in his personal life, even in the Catskill, getting into problems at school, threatening a teacher, um, goes after, I, I believe it's Teddy's niece, by grabbing grabbing her ass, and yep. that's where Teddy puts the gun to his head and threatens him. Um, Tyson always seemed to have problems with women um, and, and authority, and... Yep. You know, he wasn't training. He wasn't living in the gym. There were problems. He just was not habituated to leading a life that would keep him kind of out of jail, it seems. No, there were were many times, Bryn, I I heard the accounts that Jose Torres and Cus would have to drive 
from the Catskills and literally drive around Brooklyn and Brownsville to try to find Mike. And right. and if Cus, God forbid, saw him, he would literally grab him by the ear and drag him in the car. And he did that, I think, on a several accounts. So, yeah, Mike would get caught up. Again, it wasn't his lifestyle. It, to this day, Mike says, you know, he walks that very fine line. You know, he really walks that very fine line, period. You know, he knows he's a savage, and he and, and it could and it could twist on a dime. You know, I, I agree that Mike has seen and experienced so, so much more than so many people in his life. And, and I think what people love about him right now is his honesty and his openness and his willing to come to the table and express his emotions, you know. And, and in a way, that's what Cuss taught him. You know, Cuss was, a, you have to know who you are. You've got to search continuously for who you are. You've got to face the things about yourself that you don't want to. And that makes you a champion, not only in the ring, but in life. So you're right, the closeness was above and beyond anything, you know, that I've ever seen with a master student, so to say. But that closeness, you know, I think needed to be there at that time for Mike. Mike needed to trust somebody. He had nobody to cling to besides his pigeons. Like you said, he had nothing to do besides hide from bullies on the top of roofs in Brownsville, you know, and that's where he found the pigeons. But, you know, that relationship was a godsend for him. It changed his life, as we said, and, and, and you know, I've always, appreciate, always appreciated the closeness that they had and in some weird way always wanted a master like that that I could live with. And I think anybody that's, you know, a fighter um, or a pugilist, you know, understands that. That singular focus is truly special that Cusp was able to deliver and, and it was just attracted, you know, so many young people too. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're right about that in terms of, you know, the, the mystique of what happened and obviously the, the impact of it um, was, I mean, it was totally unprecedented where, where Tyson took boxing at that time in, in a lot of ways, especially economically. It was totally unprecedented. But there's also a lot of people who frame it, and I want to get your sense of it, that sure. Tyson was an example of Cus's revenge on boxing. Mm. Mm-hmm. That it, it was he was so angry and furious for being removed from the sport, from not being allowed to be a player, from as as you were saying earlier, not having a card to play or a hand it's to play. That Tyson Tyson, it seems, was able to get away with a lot in a way that the other kids, the other troubled kids who were housed in the Victorian mansion, were held to account. That that. The cuss was a disciplinarian with most of them, but because Tyson's ability of where he was headed, he got a pass a lot, which probably in his personal life did not serve him because he felt sort of entitled to do whatever he wanted and and have carte blanche. I agree. Um, you know, cuss always said, "I can't wait to get my own Sonny Liston." Period. Mm. So you take a gentleman that, you know, is thinking about things. I mean, at, at, just not thinking. Cus perseverates on things forever. And I just think over and over and over, you know, thinking about something, it, it comes into fruition in, in a certain way. But Cus always wanted his revenge in some way. He wanted to prove, you know, that he still can have it. You know, he still got what it takes to make a champion. I think that, you know, anybody getting older and, and, and you know, in the, you know, the fifth, sixth decade of life kind of wants to make it happen one more time. Um, and I think that is always an itch um, for somebody that has the knowledge and the ability of Cus. And when Mike came along and Cus knew what he had in Mike, there was no way he was going to throw 
water on these hot coals, period. And he definitely let him get away with so many things. And I can go into story upon story that, and, you know, recollections that I've heard. But that was the piece that Teddy hated. And that was the beginning of the rift with Teddy Atlas because Teddy really was pissed that Cuss was taking his side on a lot of this. And Cuss was letting him get away with all this. And um, that was where that rift started. But it is a fact and no doubt about it that Cuss, you know, let him slide with so many things, so many issues at school, so many issues with drugs, um, finding pot, you know, in on Mike uh, several times, um, you know, and really just ripped into him. So, yeah, Cuss, I would say, was really thankful at that time to find, you know, Mike and have the ability to have this young guy just suck up everything that he was going to, uh, you know, say and do. I want to get your take also on a lot of people romanticize what would have happened if Cuss was not in his mid to late 70s getting Tyson, if he was younger and sort of he could have, the suggestion seems to be that he could have finished the job with his great protege. And, and Tyson seems to very much um, subscribe to this narrative as well that uh, if, if, Cuss had just been there for longer, you know, he could have learned the things that sort of brought him down. And it seems like, yeah, I kind of betrayed everybody. I mean, that whole nucleus where it started, almost all of them Tyson betrayed and, and dumped pretty quickly. Yeah. By, by, by 1989, you know, King has control of everything. Yeah, really. Giacchetti was in there, a whole bunch, a whole different crew, yeah. So all of those people that Cuss had kind of set up to look after Tyson and nurture him and, and help develop him and support him that he had grown up with before there was any money that he'd earned in boxing, Tyson has left them all behind. And I don't personally, I think it is a, a comforting notion that Tyson would have acted differently with, with Cuss. But I, I believe Tyson seemed to betray anybody, and the closer they were to him, I think he would have done it in a in a bigger way. Even um, I don't see any evidence. I mean, I think Tyson told me once with his latest wife, he said, "You know, I, I've cheated on every woman I've ever been with." Like Tyson's yep. story is one of mostly self destruction, but also immense destruction and attacking and undermining. Cuss would have been like. Uh, you know, the the cornerstone of that. So and, I did ask Mike that, which is great. Okay. I can give you some good, you know, direct feedback. You know, mm-hmm. Mike, if you were going, you know, if you would have stayed with Cuss, Mike literally said, he's like, Scott, I was a beast. I was not listening to anybody at that time. I was a 20-year-old kid, you know, you know, with all the money in the world. I, he, he did not think that he would continuously listen to Cuss, period. He said that Cuss would definitely smack him into shape, and but he doesn't think, Mike doesn't think he would have listened to him over time. And that mm-hmm. made me realize Mike's kind of really looking back at himself and saying, hey, when I was a young 20-year-old kid, you know, with all the money in the world, I might not have listened to anybody. And he might have smacked me into shape, and he might have told me the right thing to do, but I was not listening to anybody at that time because I wanted to listen to me. So I think that you said it right. It would be comforting, and it's a beautiful, you know, disnification, uh, as you would say, of the story if they stayed together and Rooney was still there. But again, you take a 20-year-old kid, 21 years old, with all the money in the world, 
I think it's going to be hard to, uh, to so to say, put a collar on that, um, you know, on that pit bull. Yeah. So well, even Mike doesn't think he would have, you know, Mike says he would have stayed close with him, but Mike would not have listened to all the people around him. He was yeah. getting jaded. I think yeah. what happens, it's what happened with Floyd. Look, all the people around him, and look at the decision Floyd made. So all the people around Mike, what would have Mike done? You know, Mike might have done the wrong thing, and then right now would have said his apologies as Floyd probably, you know, as Floyd exactly did. So I think that there's some sort of similarity between what happens when you're such a, a youth with so much money and you have so many people around you swearing and telling you one thing. You've got to question what you got. And I don't think at that age you don't have the whereabouts and, so to say, the fortitude to understand the people that are standing on solid ground all the time. And you kind of get taken by the hawk. And I think that Mike would have got taken by the hawk, so to say. Yeah. Well, and, and so on balance, with Custom Auto, I mean, 10 years of research, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of interviews. Um, how did it change your perception of Cuss? I mean, given what you say, that there's, there's the story that you were able to tell, and there's another deep aspect of this that, that did not want to be told. And, and it's, it's particularly now where we're being challenged with the Me Too movement and separating art from artists, um, the private life and the secret life and then the public life of this guy kind of collide in your book. But I'm just wondering if somebody who has so much respect and admiration for him, for, for aspects of, of his story, what was it like to, to come into contact with all of these elements that comprise who, who he was? Well, it really didn't change much about the way I feel about Cuss. And, you know, it really didn't change the feeling and the knowledge that I've learned about how the peekaboo was created, about how, um, you know, Cuss designs foot movement. I, all the boxing characteristics are just still to this day, and actually, it, you'll see, it will go on forever. So I needed to really just start that dialogue. So to me... You know, doing this research and hearing the stories, it really, you know, enforced and ingrained, and I got to know the specifics of what I wanted to know. So I was truly, truly thankful to be able to uncover some of these things. But, of course, nobody likes walking into roadblocks. People like to take a path and say, what, what do you mean that's closed? What do you mean I can't go into that door? Well, how do I open it? And that happened a lot, and I wasn't able to open it. So you can see that that was frustrating, period. I wanted to start the dialogue. I wanted to write the first book out there on Cuss to state the facts that I see and really start other people giving input. Maybe other people had different stories. Maybe other people had experiences that were similar to mine. Maybe people had you know, some experiences that were similar to some of the ones I told in the story. So... I really didn't change my perspective on Cuss. I really expanded my perspective on Cuss. And that's what I really appreciated about it. And it's nice to be able to, you know, research somebody's character and psychological profile and really understand why he made a lot of these moves with his fighters, why he studied certain things and what his goal was in life and what he tried to be. I really was just fascinated and I probably always will be till I hit the grave and I will share all those stories as much as I can. But I want other people to 
have an interest in this. I want other people to kind of walk through the footprints and see some of the paths that I've walked. And, and I think that, you know, with more people and from different angles, sharing insight and sharing input, we might be able to get to a deeper insight in cuss. Yeah. Well, I, I've always, I mean, you're the, the number one resource for, for me to kind of delve into this stuff um, simply, simply by virtue of just how much information you accumulated in these 10 years. I mean, it was incredible. The photographs you've shown me and, documentation so and that's fun you know that stuff was always fun you know Bryn uh, you know one thing I could just add and don't mean to interrupt you is you know I yeah. don't know if you read Larry Sloman's book on on Mike yeah yeah absolutely you know that they didn't really touch on that at all that was you know really Mike's kind of experience through you know his eyes through his eyes but I spoke with Larry at you know length and I gave him lots of information but this was something that I'm that they didn't want to touch whatsoever um, or even talk about that the path that you know they walked down they confronted this um, so it you know made me believe that maybe they did not see some of the um, you know the path that I saw or did not interact with some of the same people I did interviews with well, no, and I mean, even even in that book, I mean, the article that we're ta- that I'm referring to from 2015, called "After the Fall" for the SB Nation, where you and I first met, um, was a last line in that, or, or sorry, a line in that book that's kind of a throwaway remark because he never returns to it, where he talks about somebody attempting to molest him, and it took me a year to get into a room with Tyson to say what happened. How do you how do you mention that somebody one cannot attempt to do that they did or they didn't right, right. I mean unless they're saying hey I'm coming at you to molest you and then they get stopped right. <laughs> it, it, it was just such an odd line and I was thinking from the biographer's point of view you didn't ask a follow up question and 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 then to my kind of eternal shock no journalist did after during the promotion of that book. That's a like good point. I, and I just thought, like, it's, it is very interesting in the What was Mike talking about? Yeah, what was he really talking about? He was talking about that he was molested. Right, right, was, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but you're right, they, they weren't asking the follow-up questions. Get into it. What, Mike, what do you mean? You know, where is that going? What are you trying to say? What do you want to talk about? You know, and I think right. you're right. By hearing little things like that make you even think more that there's more to the story that we just may not know. Well, and especially especially in the context of Mike, that when he used that line, I'll fuck you till you love me, faggot, um, he did explain in the book where that line came from, because I'd never heard anything like that in my life. I just mm-hmm. heard the, one of the most arresting quotes I've ever heard. And he said, I'm always quoting somebody. I'm always, all of my best lines, I'm quoting somebody. And when I said that line, who I was really channeling was Cuss and my mother. And I thought, well, that is a very, very deep, yes, deeply disturbing. And he was kind of saying that in relation to Cuss, not necessarily, I'm not implying that, that Cuss raped him and, and was saying it to him. I, I think he was trying to say that Cuss would help him mobilize words to intimidate opponents and to intimidate yeah. people. And so it was part of a strategic psychological attack on, on 
opponents, people he needed to intimidate to soften them up. And he talks about that in the James Toback, Toback documentary where he talks about looking into their eyes and, and the whole lead-up to fights. And, and it, it shows a side of Tyson where his psychological warfare was extraordinarily complex and effective. <laughs> and, yes. you know, I think a lot of journalists have sort of just dismissed that, like, it all came naturally to him. But you research any of his life and you find out he was not living this his whole life. He was the opposite. He exactly. was the picked on. He was the victim. He was the prey. And he's created this kind of psychological construct of uh, to intimidate people uh, to become an extraordinarily successful victimizer. He first had to be a world-class victim. You're and, right. That's a huge point. And I think also Cuss was somebody who was totally obsessed with the psychology of willpower, motivation, strategy, discipline, where I'm sure Cuss was somebody that encouraged this, that helped develop this, um, and was nurturing Tyson to, to transform into this image that he created. And I think journalists have been, at their own peril, very dismissive that Tyson created this that this was a very conscious construction as opposed to just a, a byproduct of him being an intimidating guy. Yeah, I, I mean, again, that's such a huge point, and it was one of the things that, you know, I talked to about my, and, you know, cracking the egg, the psychological egg, so to say, and Mike was so scared of losing. He wasn't this person that just went out and said, I'm going to go just knock him out in the first round. Mike was so scared of being looked at by the crowd as a loser and and as his face, his cheek on the canvas, that he had to go into this blind rage in the first or second round because he was so scared of losing. Yeah. And within that blind rage, he was lucky enough to knock many of them out. But he was so scared of losing. It wasn't the opposite, like you said. This was a scared of loss that brought out this rage. It wasn't, you know, the rage didn't happen as... You know, I'm going in, I'm focusing, and I'm going just to win this fight. It was, I don't want to lose this fight in front of everybody. And it's a very different drive, I think. And that's what kind of what I, I thought was really important that you hit on. The, the, the drive to not to fear loss and the drive to win, you know, yes, they're married together in some way, but that's what Mike was dealing with. Yeah. Um, I, I guess last question, what was the biggest surprise for you with, with embarking on this journey to, to bring Cuss's story to the public? Can you say that one more time, Bryn? What was the big surprise for you on, in embarking on a 10-year journey? You know, I think that really that it was the first book, and I really find it fascinating that slowly but surely, you know, the pot is boiling, and I get interest from probably over 20 countries I've sent the book to, um, thousands of people that I find is fascinated with Cuss, athletes that I would never realize when they have free time and they just go look on their, you know, their phones or their iPads, they're looking up Mike Tyson fights. So to realize that you know, I was fascinated with somebody of Cuss's stature and the people that Cuss was related to uh, in so many ways really started to fascinate me when I saw how many people were interested all, all across the world. So I'm really happy that the dialogue started 
it's slow. There are a couple of, um, you know, bubbles in the boiling water. But I think that if I just keep the flames on and um, people keep on talking about this, I think that more knowledge about Cus might come out. Um, more knowledge about his psyche, more conversation about who he was as a person. And really, you know, as a researcher and as somebody that cares and loves for Cus, I would love to know more about him. And if anyone has information, it's really the opportunity to kind of put it together. So I love that this is a forum now to talk about the legacy of Cus, Bryn. Cool. Thanks so much, Scott.